Welcome to the Truth to Power Show on Radio Free Brooklyn. I'm your host, VGR Nathan, and with us today is co-host Colt Mallison. Welcome, Colt. Yeah, so uh, we're here with Bajal Shaw, uh, who's a um, who's our guest today. Um, she's a, hi, hi. She's a bibliotherapist, counselor, author, and poet. She's the founder of Book Therapy, which uh, offers individual couples and group bibliotherapy, literary curation, and personalized reading services, as well as bibliotherapy training. Bajala's book, book recommendations, have been featured in The Guardian, Marie Claire, NBC News, Asian Voice, and various other publications. She's a member of the International Federation of Library Associations and the American Library Association. She is also the author of the nonfiction book, The Happiness Mindset, which has received more than 50 reviews on Amazon with a five-star rating. Welcome, Bajal. Welcome, Vijay. It's been it's such a pleasure to be here today. Thank you so much for inviting me. Oh, thank you, thank you. Yeah, so yeah, so why don't we start off just telling us a little bit about what is a bibliotherapist and uh, and how did you end up becoming one? Yeah, so I, I so basically, bibliotherapy is the use of literature okay. as therapy. It's very much a form of art therapy. And um, and I'd say it's an extension of any sort of counseling or psychotherapy. And my own journey into bibliotherapy, I think, began really when I was working in investment banking um, about, you know, about 13 years ago. Um, shows my age. Uh, but I, I essentially did a sort of part time diploma in psychodynamic counseling and psychotherapy where I actually underwent therapy myself. Um, and during my own therapy sessions, I noticed that every time I explored an issue, I'd reach out to a book to understand the context better. And my therapist would suggest books or Greek myths or simple stories to illustrate a point, which I found really helpful. And I felt that that was really leveraging the therapeutic process. And it was at this point that I felt that there's something really powerful here that needs to be explored. And so I, you know, began my research. I uh, spoke to lots and lots of, you know, professors in, in the UK and um, Europe. And, you know, one specific person that, um, you know, whose work I really enjoyed, um, you know, reading and she, she'd done a lot of research on bibliotherapy was the Finnish bibliotherapist, Purgesi Vileto. She's um, a doctor of uh, philosophy and literature at the University of Yulu. And um, her work's been phenomenal. And then there's also the Reading Centre here in uh, the University of Liverpool in the UK, and, and they do some wonderful work um, on reading as a therapeutic medium. So, you know, I kind of wanted to draw everything that I'd learned from, from these people and also sort of going back to, you know, the 1940s and 50s, um, Caroline Trost's work, her dissertation on um, bibliotherapy, um, which has really been, the, you know, the framework for my uh, my approach. Um, you know, I, that all of that sort of influenced and inspired me to sort of launch bibliotherapy here in the UK and bring it as an extension um, to my sort of counselling education uh, and practice. And so, essentially, that's that's how I ended up launching. Um, book therapy uh, after giving up my investment banking job in 20, 
17 post the birth of my my daughter Ariana um and you know I felt that uh I felt that not very many people had heard of it um but lots and lots of people have been very open to it and it's you know it's slowly been growing here in the UK and the US I think uh and more and more people are really sort of especially now during the pandemic, uh, turning to art therapies, alternative therapies, and bibliotherapy has been quite a quite uh, popular, I'd say, with, with my clients um, and other avid readers, especially. Yeah, yeah great, great. So um, tell us a little bit about how uh, you connect readers with the book. Uh, it was a process when someone comes to you and uh, you're able to... Um, connect a person with the book based on that do you interview them and what is the process of doing that yeah sure so i get people so basically there's two services that i provide either a bibliotherapy session or a personalized reading list uh because i found that sometimes people wanted just they just wanted to know what books to read uh so i offer both and um before you start the session or you know we we do the research behind the the books that I'm going to prescribe, I get you to fill out a questionnaire um, about sort of your reading preferences, what you're looking to explore, whether that's therapeutic. I also do it for personal interest, so it's very much a curation service. But um, you, we get to find out a little bit about what you enjoy reading, what you're looking to explore, um, how much time you have, what formats do you prefer uh, you know, reading uh, your, your book in, whether that's paperback or Kindle, or do you prefer to listen to audiobooks? Um, and then we take away all that information and we come back and we have sort of a, a curated uh, reading list for you. And then that could just be, you know, if you've chosen the book prescription service, you, you get the book prescription. But if you also want to discuss it in a sort of more counseling and therapeutic um, session, then, then we, we do the bibliotherapy session as well. Um, and uh, essentially, you know, a large part of it is matching the books to what you enjoy so you might be a fiction reader um and you hate nonfiction. so in that case i would never prescribe anything that's you know just going to turn you off because the the most important part of the matching process is that you connect with the book and that you identify with the book um and, and identify with either the narrative or the characters so this is very much my sort of three-step framework of, for the bibliotherapy process you know you, the individual or the reader needs to identify and connect with the text or relevant character. Um, the text needs to be able to help the individual connect with their emotions. Um, so to allow them to release them because we're aiming for a cathartic response. And then, you know, essentially we move on to what we can consolidate from our learnings or our readings in terms of uh, either working out some coping mechanisms or um, just a strategy going forward in terms of, you know, once you've had a chance to discuss uh, what you're feeling and how, you, how you're going to approach um, whatever issue you're dealing with going forward. Yeah, yeah. So that's really great. And um, I want to clarify for the listeners as well, like, you know, like the reading itself is therapeutic, but, um, you know, kind of the process of like reading with the intention of with a specific complaint uh, is slightly different, right? I mean, how, how, like, what are, what are some common complaints and books that 
you'd pair with them. Some common complaints? Yeah, common ailments or, or problems, issues that come oh, up and, and how you'd pair it with the, with the reading selection, yeah. Yes, absolutely. So, I mean, dur during the pandemic, of course, the, the you know, people have faced all sorts of loss, um, whether that's a job loss or whether that's grieving for someone who's, who's passed or whether that's just, you know, a separation. Um, we've we've had a lot of requests for that. So we've ended up pairing a lot of either fiction or nonfiction books um, to help deal with loss and grief. Um, so it could be something like if, if someone's passed away, it would be like Cheryl, something like Cheryl Sandberg's option B, which you wrote with the psychologist Adam Grant, who's, who's, whose work is um, phenomenal in terms of providing ways to deal with grief and the five stages of, gr of grief. Um, but if you prefer something that's you know, more non-fiction, more fiction than books like, you know, The Sky is Everywhere. Um, that's a wonderful book on on the loss of a sibling. Um, so we we kind of go out and just work out, like, do you want something that's fiction related? Some people just want memoir, for example, and then, you know, we'd, we'd be very much selecting um, memoir. Um, how um, many um, books do you recommend per time? Like, is it like five or 10? Or is it because uh, it seems like a mix of fiction and, and nonfiction that would be, you know, Yeah, we, we, we also do combinations. Um, some people, you know, a lot of people are in the middle who love fiction and nonfiction. So we, I tend to prescribe seven to ten okay. uh, books as part of their reading list. But often there will be more because, you know, most of my clients are super avid readers and um, they'll, you know, they'll come back and they'll say, oh, but can you, can you, you know give me something with this angle or um you know sometimes i'll go into like a real real specifics like they'll be like i'm having professional career doubts but i want something from the 19th century uh i like classical literature um so you know they'd be like super specific and and so we'd go away and kind of really hone into you know what exactly where do we have protagonists who are dealing with career anxiety and it could be all the way back to you know 19th century literature like you know George Eliot uh George, a lot of George Eliot novels are wonderful um because they're very psychological in in their sort of narrative in fact she was a pioneer of, of modern psychology um so her her work's wonderful but yeah we we get very sort of <laughs> very 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 specific requests of what people are looking for um, but that is that's that's matching that and getting getting it right is actually what's going to create that healing space for the reader. Thank you, thank you. And I'm definitely a believer that um, literature in general is like is like helps in problem solving. You know, because the 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 issue of the problem of the book sometimes can can really be reflected deeply in our troubles, and you know, we can kind of get a sense of like. What if, um, what if how, how, how the author kind of plays out this kind of scenarios and, and, and even if it's not, even if it's fantastic, we find the micro level, you know, relationships and, and how and work and, and how things can play out. And we get a sense of that. So I definitely believe that. But um, I want to ask you about youth in particular. Um, how, does, uh, how does bibliotherapy play a role in, in youth mental health? I know you, young people... Sometimes either are reluctant readers or they're like um, kind of like, and you're, you're trying to get them to understand how to engage more 
with um, with literature. So tell us a little bit about youth in particular. Yeah, sure. So I think um, youth literature is is an interesting one because um, there is you know there's a therapeutic literature, but then there's also the developmental literature because um, you know you're sort of preempting development needs as well as you know just working with what the emotional needs of a of a teenager is. So um, you know we'd we'd use it from from both perspectives there's something like sex education um you know that's a development need um there's a lot of young adult literature that would that would deal with that both sort of fiction and non-fiction um but then if you're going through you know issues such as you're dealing with a serious illness or cancer or um you know a loss of a parent or a parent you know your parents are separating then there's a lot of you know young adult fiction that we you know we'd also prescribe but but what's most important is that um you know your i use a method called literary journaling and i really want you know young young you know teenagers to really use um journaling as a reflective tool for when they're reading because you know it's easy to just skip through pages i mean it's easy to just read a book and then just forget about it but the real work actually happens when you are journaling and reflecting and working out what the literature is triggering for you and you know and then being able to discuss that in a either with a teacher or a counselor or a parent um, because that's like where the real work happens um, so that is really important uh, with with sort of youth you know youth bibliotherapy and you know that is one of the challenges is it's getting these kids into early journaling habit from a young age um because that's very much part of the work you know when, when you're when you're using the reading as, as a as a therapeutic tool why why do you think some books connect with some people at certain parts of their life and uh, other times they don't like it's i remember in college i read like view the obscure by her thomas hardy and i thought it was like this great powerful thing and then i read it like in my 30s and I, I didn't like it as much so is there a thing that like a time and place or mental awareness that that some books connect at certain parts of people's lives and not others yeah absolutely you're, you're spot on um i you know the, the the times because it's very much you know is your experience being reflected in the book and if you've kind of moved on then you know you're not you're just not going to resonate anymore with with that experience or you've you know it's just not gonna uh you're just not going to connect with it and therefore you know like you said you didn't really feel like in later life that it was something that really had the same magic i guess um and and that happens all the time i think rereading books at different stages of your life you know you feel like you're that was a different book almost um and you can also have the vice versa experience where you might have read something, not really understood it, and then read it later in life and think, oh my God, this is just amazing. Like it makes so much sense to me now. Um, like like I was saying to Vijay, I, I recently picked up Scott M. Peck's um, The Road Less Traveled. And I read that in my early, like, I, I don't think I was even 20 and I don't think I fully appreciated the book. Whereas now that I, now after, you know, reading it, like, Late, much later on in life, post children, I think it's very different. Uh, there's so many sort of 
life experiences that I that I can now map back to this book because it's very much a book on psychotherapy. Um, and so, you know, we're always reading through our own, you know, through our own lens, like our own, own lens is effectively a filter for what we are taking in, like everything is seen through our own experiences. So if you're not connecting with, with a book, it's because maybe that experience is just not relevant for you anymore. Mm -hmm. um, so that's a very interesting phenomenon. It, it happens all the time. Uh, um, and so sometimes I, I, I'm scared to read a book again because I'm <laughs> yeah. like, I don't want it to, I don't want to lose that nostalgia or like that, that joy I felt at that time or that memory. Um, yeah, to be, to be spoiled. Also, I want to return to the youth uh, idea as well for a moment here. Um, so now, sure. uh, also asking about um, connecting books with reading levels. I know in the schools they have, um, in the American schools, they have this idea of like reading levels A to Z. So they have like, oh, you're in reading level L to N, or you're in level A to B or something like that, like beginning level. And then they ask them to read books on that level. Whereas the library has the philosophy that people, readers should find their own book and, um, you know, connect. And if they can't, uh, you know, of course, if they have trouble based on interest, more based on interest. So, of course, if they have trouble understanding the words, they can always look them up or they can, you know, they encourage them to get a dictionary and look up these books, look up these words that they're having trouble with. But uh, what is your take on that? And what is your take on, uh, like, the, the differing philosophies between, like, children reading either classics or, or children reading uh, the adapted classics, all these kinds of issues that come up around, uh, around that? Yeah, that's a really interesting one. I think... You know, we're moving. Um, so, so the question around classics, I feel that it's a very sort of old school narrative because it's it's it really does not represent um, everyone, every demographic. Mm. And so, whilst it has its place as a maybe as a piece of valuable literature um, and valuable ideas of a time and place that you know we no longer have access to, and it, it's very educated. I guess from that perspective it takes us back in history um, from a bibliotherapeutic perspective I don't think it often allows people to really relate you, you might be able to relate to the emotions that the protagonist is going through but sometimes you might find it hard to put yourself in that narrative because you, you can't see yourself represented in that mm. and that's why I think modern literature more contemporary literature is is, is more representative of that but I do think it's also important to read you know, diversely, and so read read the modern stuff, but also go back and appreciate the classics and and what made them um, so timeless. Uh, and that might be more about you know the story and the way that of craft the, the characters, and even to some degree the emotions. I'll keep going back to George George Eliot's um, work because she her character development is just wonderful in the way she that she manages to hold up complex emotions um it's so representative of real life uh and real people you know the, the, we are all sort of ambivalent sometimes we're all facing so many different emotions and she manages to capture that really well whereas some authors are you know a little more black and white or more siloed um in their character developments so i think so so authors who do what george Eliot does 
you know, really do capture the reader's attention, the connection, uh, the empathy, uh, which is where, you know, which is the starting point of all the work that happens um, within, you know, when, when you're reading um, and when you're, when you're specifically reading for, uh, for bibliotherapy purposes. Yeah, and also speaking of good reading habits, um, you were talking a little bit about journaling, but what other steps can we do to adopt a good reading habit, include literature as part of one's self-care? Yeah, sure. So, you know, um, I always say that, you know, reading is a daily habit. Like, if you don't read daily or you don't read regularly, you're just going to be a holiday reader. And there's nothing wrong with a holiday reader. But if you really want to get the most out of your reading and you really want to build on just, you know, um, just building good good reading habits and being able to use literature as a valuable tool for self-development, then I would really suggest that you've got to, you know, you just like how you go to the gym and take your fitness seriously, you'd have to take, you know, reading seriously and, and try and read, you know, a, you know, a number of hours a week if you can't read daily, which, you know, I know daily is always a big ask. <laughs> um, but I think, you know, trying to um, make time for reading um, consistently on a regular basis is is absolutely key and in just building that into your routine. I remember um, uh, one person said to try to read an hour a day, like an hour at night or just a, an, at least an hour a day. And then then, then that's a that's a good amount. Yeah, absolutely. You know, an hour, half an hour, if you're, you know, just before bedtime, there's Penguin did a great study that reading actually um, is great. Uh, it's great to read before you go to sleep because it helps you sleep better. <laughs> it does unwind your mind and it does relax you and you know, you'll end up getting a good night's sleep. So it's quite a nice one to build in, like just before you're going to bed, you know, that 30 minutes to an hour, if you can. Um, and I'd also say, you know, like I mentioned about the journaling, so that's really important to, to reflect on what you're reading and, and, and what it's triggering for you, because that is where the work happens. So that's really important. Um, and then another one that I really like is finding a reading partner or having an accountability partner who you might like read the same book with to get you know you're reading at your own pace but you've got somebody to discuss it with and you're both sort of motivating each other to finish um i think reading partners are, are great um and it's just sort of getting that that commitment uh to yeah to to finishing that book how is that so, is, is a reading partner different from a book club or i guess a, a reading partner is just like one person or is it because i haven't yeah, heard that term before like one person okay <laughs> Um, this is in the event that, like, you, you might not have time for a book club, okay. regular book club, or um, I also find that with a reading partner, it just becomes, the whole conversation becomes more intimate. Um, you're more likely to help each other focus. Now there's not the, you know, now you don't have, like, four or five other people in a group that you're messaging. I think when you've got, it's like having a personal coach, right? Mm -hmm. Like, you're more likely to finish it as opposed to just, going to the gym with a bunch of friends um you know you're more likely to stick to the book and 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 finish it because you're now committed to getting back to this other person on all these things that you'd said you'd discuss after reading the book um so 
yeah I think a reading partner is more like one person it could be like you know it could just be your spouse or your partner or a, a very good friend or a sibling or you know whoever's kind of got some interest um in 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 in, in the books that you that you like or you, it could be that you both just want to read this one book yeah and also um talking a little bit about your own journey or returning to your own journey and books that really sparked you or triggered you or and, and or really sparked you or, or you know the, the two sides of the coin it's like on the one side of the coin you have that you know you have a book that really enlivened you and one book that really kind of got you going in the sense of like you know kind of brought up all these emotions or something like that so going on the two uh flip sides of the coins can you tell us a little bit about some of the the works that really inspired or or you, that you hated yeah sure so um I think I mentioned one of them already, The Road Less Traveled by American psychologist Scott M. Peck. Um, it, it's a book that was written quite a while ago, but it's, and I do feel like it's a little bit under the radar, but it's um, it's an amazing book on like love and psychotherapy. Um, and it's, it's the book that I think it always reaffirms my faith in therapy. Um, and, you know, it really reminds us that if we're at a certain point in our lives um, and we're facing like a, an issue, it's because there were loads and loads, lots of small issues before that were never resolved. And now they've kind of snowballed into this issue that we have. So it's kind of like, you know, working backwards and undoing every little um, thing that got you to this stage and, and working on that and not uh, denying the truth of things that might have been uncomfortable that you do need to address in therapy um i just love that that message that he sends throughout the book um on that on on those issues snowballing um and i think it's a book that i think forces you to live a little bit more authentically and, and be true to yourself um but it, you know it is uncomfortable um to get to that stage um and I, I think that's why the book's called the the road less traveled because you know often we we choose the easy path um other conventional path. sorry if you already said it but when was it written again when was when it when was it written yeah i think it was written in the 1980s or okay something. yeah it was it's a, it's a little bit um it's a little bit under the radar but i think it's a book that's still so relevant right now mm. Um, and I would, you know, I picked, I picked it up again yesterday <laughs> yeah. um, because it's, it's one of those books that you'll read over and over again. And every time you read it, you'll get something more and, you know, more meaning. Yeah. I was just thinking the other day about how, um, you know, sometimes like, uh, when I'm, when I have a go-to authors, uh, where yeah. I, I, I think of authors in terms of like, you know, following the career and contemporary authors and like thinking about their latest book and what, how it, how it relates to the journey kind of evolving with them. And, uh, like Haruki Murakami is one of the authors that I've been following for a number of years now. And, um, uh, Stephen King, of course, I followed for a number of years now since growing up. I remember as like a, a very young person, I read it, which is a pretty, uh, mind blowing book to read as a young person. Uh, you know, cause you, yeah, you, yeah it's pretty, it's pretty, um, intense and some of the some of Stephen King's materials are kind of like graphic uh, obviously um, but uh, uh, you know, as a young person I think we're able to process it better in print than in visual you know I think that when we see visuals of like Stephen King novels there's a lot more disturbing elements to it than when you read it because there's a lot of empathy in there as well 
Yeah, there is. And I think it it, it really um, captures your perspective. I think a, a movie doesn't always capture, you know, it's, it's, it's very much a narrow one-sided uh, interpretation. Whereas I think with, um, when you're reading something, it really does uh, allow you to take it, you know, to view it the way you want to see it, to, uh, to uh, it allows you to trigger, it, it triggers things in you that you now get to explore um, as you continue to read the book and as you continue to, yeah, I guess, empathize, empathize with it. Yeah, thank you. I just remind listeners, this is uh, Radio Free Brooklyn. We're here with Bajal Shah, who's a bibliotherapist talking a little bit about um, uh, connecting readers with uh, a good reading habit uh, to, for their mental health uh, concerns or mental health wellness, mental wellness. We're also here with co-host Mal- Col- Colt Mallison. Um, so uh, we'll talk a little bit now about... Um, uh, also, I just want to say that uh, you're listening to Radio Free Brooklyn. Uh, your support keeps us going. So if you'd like to donate or like to find out more, I'll talk a little bit more about that later. But... Um, you know, COVID-19 has been stopping everyone's lives right now. Radio Free Brooklyn is no exception. We want you to know that we've made every effort to ensure the health and wellness of our host, staff, and community at large. We've closed. Uh, well, right now, they're, they're, we're in the studio, but we've canceled live events. Hosting the best continue bringing new original programming, broadcasting live, and pre-recording from the home studios. By selecting the best pre-records of past shows. With most of our revenue stream evaporated, we need your help. Realize you may be hurting too, but if you can afford a small donation, it'll go a long way to help us stay in the air. There are three ways you can help. First, you can give a one-time donation or monthly pledge. You can go to radiofrooklyn.org slash donate. There you can find great t-shirts, mugs, and other swag. They'd like to send you to say thanks. You can also use your phone, text RFP give 5 to 44321. It takes a moment, and you'll be able to use your digital wallet for your donation. Finally, if you shop on Amazon, you can go to amazon.com slash smile. Or register Radio for Brooklyn as your nonprofit you wish to support. When you do a percentage of your sales, you go to RFB and it costs you nothing. No donation is too big or too small, but if you can afford to make a huge difference, we thank you from the bottom of our hearts and wish you the listeners health and happiness as we weather the storm together. Um, so also I want to talk a little bit about, uh, we're here with Bajal Shah. I want to talk a little bit about um, your inspiration behind founding book therapy as a business and how that's been going and how, and, and a little bit more about that, that model. Yeah, sure. So, um, I began this in 2017, post leaving my investment banking job um, in London. Um, and this was after sort of, you know, having done my diploma in counseling and psychotherapy and also written um, a book, uh, The Happiness Mindset. And I really wanted to, I guess I really wanted to combine what I'd learned during my therapy because I, I, I really sort of use literature a lot um especially as part of my journaling which i would be taking to my therapist and i wanted to bring that i I just wanted to bring that approach to the world and um also make it more accessible because i find that you know counseling isn't and psychotherapy is an expensive process it's you know it's a very long uh, arduous process and i feel like bibliotherapy um sometimes bridges that and offers people um, another way, a more affordable way of dealing with their issues um, and also being able to do it uh, from a more sort of self-bibliotherapy perspective, just through, through literature and journaling and unstructured writing. Um, some of these techniques I teach in my course, 
but the, the the goal here was to bring in this art therapy that um that gives people comfort and hope and help um during a time when you know not everyone can afford therapy and also it's very hard to find somebody that you connect with um and you know in terms of finding a therapy whereas i think with literature it's it's, it's very uh, sorry in terms of finding a therapist you know you really need to connect with the therapist before you sort of engage in therapy with them um but with literature you know some it's very easy to find a book that you'll connect with and um that in itself is very healing and therapeutic so that was kind of like the inspiration and I ended up setting um, setting up a couple of services, so bibliotherapy sessions for individuals, for couples, and then also the curated reading lists, which dealt with like therapeutic issues, requests, um, and also more personal interests. I had lots of avid readers who just wanted, um, you know, some book recommendations for something that they're very personally interested in, and it could be from like travel books to um, you know, career issues um, to, you know, like I mentioned, I want, you know, 18th century Gothic literature, or I want, um, you know, specific historical fiction from this time, or I like Japanese books, or I'm, I'm very much interested in translated fiction. Uh, I want to read more, you know, translated works, which are not so mainstream. So, yeah, I think, you know, it's it's kind of evolved into those two main services. And then I do sell like other literary guides and and some tools for journaling, literary journaling. Um, and then, of course, there, there was the bibliotherapy course because a lot of my clients wanted just wanted to do a course. or just wanted to learn a little bit more about bibliotherapy and how it works. Um, so, yeah, so. And I think Vijay, that's how we sort of connected. Through, I think it was through that course. But um, yeah, so I think essentially that, in a nutshell, I guess, is is the business. Um, and all, you know, all the bibliotherapy sessions are done online. Um, mm. And I, also, I wanted to say about genre. Um, yes. Comment a little bit more on genre. So now, sometimes people like to, you know, go. I know you also talked a little bit about poetry in your. Uh, presentation in the bibliotherapy course and um, you know of course classic poetry like Robert Frost, Walt Whitman or Emily Dickinson a little bit more accessible than sometimes contemporary poetry so talking a little bit about kind of exploring like more challenging forms of poetry and how people can get equipped for uh, navigating that kind of sometimes you know so many people I meet I'm a, as a poet myself it's so frustrating how so many people have this aversion towards poetry but there's so much to gain from it when you become out when you become a reader and become literate in it but it sense this is kind of very different literacy from uh literature or prose uh it's a little bit more of a focus on language or the archery of language and that you don't always understand in the first reading what's going on so how can we overcome some of those blocks would you recommend to be able to access the the therapeutic elements of it yeah sure so i mean poetry is always um it can always feel quite daunting and intimidating. And, you know, what I would say is um, if, if, if you're not connecting with a poem straight away, or if, if it just feels a little too, I don't know, bleak or <laughs> uh, just too distant, I guess I would listen to somebody reading a poem or mm. I find that, you know, when you listen to somebody, 
they bring out the emotion, um, they bring out the tone, they bring out the rhythm. And I think that gets you going as a, as a nice warm up to getting into poetry. Um, and, you know, the ones you mentioned, Rob, I mean, Robert Frost is an amazing poem, poet, but there's like Mary, a lot of Mary Oliver's work. I mean, she was a wonderful American poet um, and her work is, is great. She's also got a wonderful um, introductory book to poetry, um, which I guess if you're interested in the craft itself, uh, it's it's a nice way to to learn a little bit more. It's called the Poetry Handbook. It's a nice way to to learn a little bit more about you know what a poem is trying to do. Um, but there are some poems that are probably more therapeutic than others. And there's a really uh, wonderful British author called William Seacott, and he's put together a collection of poems from a poet from a therapeutic perspective so I think his, his books are called the poetry pharmacy and um, each poem in there is that is is it like a a prescription for the heart or the mind or the soul like it's there to address like a emotional theme mm-hmm. um, from suffering to despair to anxiety to heartbreak you know to uh finding courage to grief um so i think that is wonderful if you're looking at it from a if you're looking for something therapeutic and healing um and i find that those kind of poems you you naturally end up connecting with because we all can relate to them at some point in our lives right and those i find are actually the easier poems to start with um because emotionally they will get you hooked so i would definitely recommend some of his his poetry as a starting point. Um, I had, um, oh, go ahead. What's that? Oh, I just had a, a, a different question, but finish. I, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, poetry, um, I would also say have a go at writing poetry um, or even some sort of confessional poetry, like if you're having a really bad day. Um, I find that that is so therapeutic, just writing down something. Um, and it could be, you know, it could be poetic, it could be, you could write it in a certain rhythm. And I yeah. think that's really healing in itself. And I, you know, a large part of bibliotherapy and some of the tools that we use is, is creative writing and unstructured writing. That's very healing. Mm. Um, so you've got the reading element, but you've also got the writing element. Thank you, thank you. So this is just a, a little off topic, but with the therapy, uh, as uh, the therapeutic aspect, is this more guided towards like recovery? Because I'm I'm schizoaffective, and I can't imagine trying to look at a list like during an active episode. So is it like a lot of a, a part geared toward recovery of like mental illness, or you know? Um, but not so I, I don't think it would ever fill the gap for like a real psychiatric intervention okay. um, or, you know, long term psychotherapy and counseling, because there's very much a need for that. And it would never replace that. Okay. Um, but it would certainly give you ways of understanding how other people have dealt with this um, coping strategies. Uh, connection with a protagonist which in, in itself is healing like a lot of the times we want to be able to connect with other people going through what we're going through um, and it would give you all of that you know those sorts of um, healing experiences I guess um, I think connecting 
connecting with a book sometimes is no different with con connecting with another person you know uh that in itself is half the work you know <laughs> um I, f I feel like that's really important that that connection uh especially now with with the pandemic when we feel we're like socially disconnected or just you know maybe feel a bit more alone but yeah I think you know psychotherapy long-term psychotherapy psychiatric intervention still very important and this is more of a complementary um bibliotherapy is, is, is complementary to all of those and works really well in parallel and also it seems like uh for me at least when it comes to psychiatric uh interventions it's like you know of course you're in a crisis is one thing but when, when you're reflecting on the long-term effects of that crisis you can look at books that examine um you know kind of people who have gone through trauma you know and, and look at all this kind of thing and, and examine the kind of journey they've taken and understand the depth of human experiences people who have themselves kind of experienced these things and find solidarity in their journey as well yeah, and recovery so, can take years so yeah. like a, a, you know books can definitely help yeah, yeah. Um, i absolutely agree because your therapist isn't going to tell you about all the other clients that he's seen yeah exactly. and, and and libraries have libraries have readers advisory but it's, it's kind of like you know a quick exchange like you know we just kind of look at you know what they like to read and like give a few suggestions but we never get personal with people so we don't really know what they're problems yeah. are so i think the bibliotherapy is kind of a a good it sounds like a good thing yeah yeah no i i mean we definitely have that sort of confidentiality aspect and um that approach to it's you know very sort of there's a clear framework of how is this person going to what is this person going to connect with and are they going to identify with the narrative the author or the protagonist um those three those are absolutely those two points are absolutely key in in matching um, the book to the person. Yeah. Also, also, when you say that, it also makes me think about like uh, multiculturalism and, and point of views in the sense of like um, you know boys reading books about girls or from the point of view of a girl and a girl reading. You know, I, th I think that traditionally we seem to say that girls, are of course, you know, culture to read books about boys or the point of view of a boy. But then uh, many um, boys feel adverse to reading books about young, young children I'm talking about or like growing up. Yeah. Uh, you know, they're like, oh, I don't want to read a book about a girl. But I think it's very important to get that point of view for all readers and, and also in multiculturalism to, to break away from the mold of all oh, this protagonist is just like me, you know, and, and trying to find that depth of human psychology in reading a, a book about someone who's very different from you. Um, kind of being adventurous yeah. in your reading. Yeah, I've commented a little bit on that. What's well, good about now is that you have books from all over the world too. So if you, yeah. you can you kind yeah. of learn about places by reading. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, really learning, really getting into the psyche of a character that's so different to you. Like, <laughs> yeah. um, there's one that um, comes to mind, Convenience Store Woman. I don't know if you... Yeah. Yeah, the, the Japanese, right? The, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, just I read that. book about um, did you read it? Did you yes, like it? I liked it. Yeah, Cas our friend Casper recommended it to us. Yeah, yeah, it's wonderful. I mean, I think the protagonist. I think she's she's actually anti an antisocial. Like, if I was to give her a, a you know a psychological um, diagnosis, I'd, I'd say she was slightly antisocial. Um, but I think that's what the author wanted to do. She just wanted to surprise her readers with this antisocial character, and actually, 
it's okay you know it's it's just who this person is and uh you know this whole concept about neurodiversity you know accepting people in their different forms and shapes and uh, even if they're on the fringes of what's conventional mental health, mm. um, it's it's quite refreshing actually. Mm. I, I find that book quite refreshing because it was there was very much a ch- challenge of societal norms. Yeah, perhaps um, that was the uh, one of the questions we had. We we're talking about the truths that are undervalued by society. For me, that's the truth that I think is undervalued by society: the neurodiversity aspect. Because like. Um, you know, so many people think that, oh, if, if you're not normal, you're not, if you're not in the norm, then you're not normal, you're not healthy, you know, like, you know, you can be healthy and not be in the norm, uh, not be in the yeah. normal, you know, so yeah. if you comment a little bit about, a little bit more on that, a little bit more about uh, what is the truth you think is undervalued by society? Uh, for me, uh, me personally, yes, I completely agree with your, your comments on neurodiversity. I think um, that's absolutely key, and I think we're starting to change our perspectives around how we view people who are maybe slightly more autistic or antisocial or you know have ADHD because they are they have other genius aspects to them um, so it's quite nice to to embrace that um, but also I'd say uh, for me suffering I think suffering is is um, is really undervalued because I think through suffering, we we um, we gain a lot. We find a lot of meaning. We find a lot of purpose through suffering. We we only get to that meaning and purpose because we've gone gone through some form of suffering. Um, and and this is you know if you, I don't know if you've ever read Viktor Frankl's Man Search for Meaning. Oh yes, yes, yeah. Very Love much that. talk about that. You know the shelf. Um, I haven't read it though, but it's a small book. Yeah, yeah small. Yeah, it's very good. Yeah. Yeah, it's wonderful. Holocaust survivor who you know he survived because he had this 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 uh philosophy or this uh way of looking at life um about just trying to find meaning in everything that he was doing even when he was at those camps um so that was wonderful and also i mean i go back to suffering because i think it's a noble truth of of buddhism as well where you know um so much of life is suffering and we all of us all we want to do is cover up the suffering like we you know we don't want to show anything on social media that might portray suffering and obviously we do and we all do it but not enough i think 80 percent of the posts on social media are all about how wonderful we are all are and how successful we all are and how great our life is and i feel that um you know that's stopping us from living more authentic lives like Mm. people acknowledge that we're all going through suffering i think we could all be ourselves more we could all yeah just be more authentic um which for me i feel is always the end goal you know so i I would say yeah those those things um suffering is probably undervalued yeah with the coronavirus it seems like a collective suffering but it's it's Mm. still i don't know how much has changed the the you know the world's perspective on you know how we see ourselves you know yeah and also i was thinking about suffering it's like um you know of course they think they say pain is pain is inevitable but suffering is optional i think is the phrase because it's like uh, on the one hand it's like that's the kind of the prevalent uh idea that's out there but sometimes people choose to lean into their suffering because that's the very austere path to be able to lean into so you can learn the lessons trying to teach you so I think that's yeah. that's what I understood with what you're saying is that 
the suffering, you know, people like to say, oh, you know, you can choose to suffer, but then, um, but then it's, it's teaching you something or it's helping you to, to realize something. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. Um, I think it's, it's, it's probably getting you more to your true self in some ways. Mm-hmm. Um, because that is the, the reality of life and the nature of, of, of how we all, how we all operate. Um, yeah. So one of the questions yeah. I had here was about, uh, and it seems like, uh, you have a counter, uh, answer to this, but something about, um, if you were to recommend one book or one piece of work, uh, for everyone to read that all humans should read, um, what would it be? And it seems like your, your, your business is to tailor the book to what individual people, but what is it? What is something for like all humans to read or consume? Is there something to read or consume? Is there anything that you think would be like a universal key, like a skeleton key, or at least many people would be able to understand it? Um, I always, you know, I always, uh, I always go back to the, Celestine Prophecy. I don't know if you've if you've come across the book by James Redfield. And the Celestine Prophecy is very much, um, and it could be because we're in this time where everybody's really questioning climate change and, you know, not questioning climate change, but really sort of awakening to, to mm. what's happening to our planet. And um, I like the Celestine Prophecy because it's it's not really it's 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 a very very spiritual book so it's not religious in any way it's very sort of spiritual and it really um, talks it's a fiction book but it really talks about our connection to nature our connection to trees um, to plants around us and it brings up a really interesting well when I read it which is when I was very young. Um, I found it quite novel and quite innovative. You know, it was, it was talking about the feelings of, of plants and, you know, trees and um, how they've got language that they communicate with. And I think it was really um, opening and how they work in terms of group dynamics, like how they look after each other. Um, and, you know, you look at humans and we're not very good at looking at, you know, we're very sort of in competition with each other all the time and there's always this conflict. Um, and I think the Celestine Prophecy wonderfully captures how nature perhaps works well with, with each other in terms of looking after each other, in terms of being more caring, more nurturing. And, you know, I think it's just such a w- wonderful way of looking at maybe how humans should be. Um, and it's almost like this universal like ideology of like, I don't know, um, a more sort of united world, a more sort of compassionate world. Um, and I really liked that book because I just felt like, you know, if I had a vision for the world, maybe I'd want it to be like how this author's mapping out um, how you know, nature and trees and the forests and uh, how they're all living in, in, in union together. Sorry, it probably sounds very complicated. Yeah, yeah. no, I understand, I understand. Uh, I, I want to read it now. Yeah, I definitely you're selling that book very well because I like to read it now. Because, <laughs> so I think it's very good to, to understand how we're all living together on this planet and awakening, general awakening, and, and kind of like realizing that that was really what unites us, the our connection to Earth, you know? Yes, absolutely. And I think, I mean, there have been more recent books, The Overstory, um, Jenny Offal's Weather, 
Um, they're all wonderful books sort of in this sort of climate climate fiction genre. Uh, but yeah, I think I think it's a nice book to read right now. <laughs> so talking about characters, as we start to wind down, who are some of your favorite characters and uh, and uh, yeah, and, and, and characters you think that are like go beyond the the, the pages of the book and, and really live in you? Wow, that's a deep question. Yeah, <laughs> I would. Um, so, I don't know if you've if you've come across. Um, maybe you should talk to someone by Laurie Gottlieb. Oh, I've heard the book, but I, I haven't read it. Yeah, it's um, it's a wonderful book. Again, it's a, a little bit about. <laughs> it's like an autofiction book, so she's it's like part memoir, part autofiction. So you kind of, it's very much based on her um, clients and the clients that she sees, but also herself and her own therapy. So she's a psychotherapist, and um, she brings together cases of different people that she's seeing, but also she's going through a relationship a breakup um but just i think she's just done such a wonderful job of um making all the characters come to life so that you know i'm always drawing on them when i'm going through something that difficult because i'll be like oh that character went through through you know through that and this is how she described the therapy and the approach and yeah though i think they stay with me i think they're in my head sometimes yeah. Um, because I I could empathize with them so much that I often feel like, you know, maybe I, I you know, I could see myself in their stories. Um, so I would suggest, yeah, I would, I would suggest, I mean, it's quite a recent book. It only came out in like 2018 or something. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, but I think it's going to be made into an HBO series. Um, I think there was, I think it was initially going to be produced by, Eva Longoria, but I, I don't know if that's still the case. But it's 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 such a it's a wonderful book. Like it's funny. It's, there's talk about therapy. There's there's talk about these clients, these people going through difficult times. I think it's one of those books that touches on a lot of emotional buttons. Like you'll probably push a lot of your buttons at the same time. Um, but yeah, it yeah, I would. I would yeah, yeah, and also um, I, that reminds me a little bit of Chris Gethard's books. Because he's a comedian who had an HBO series, HBO um, special, Career Suicide, about his struggle with uh, mental difficulties, mental illness. And, uh, and he's also a comedian, he, and he brings it up to the light. And he wrote two books about a um, uh, bad, bad idea I'm about to, I'm about to do, uh, which deals with his kind of memoir-ish, uh, but also uh, dealing with kind of coping with uh, all these issues so it kind of reminds me what you were saying. Kind of remind, brought that triggered that memory in my mind because it's like um, you know he, he was very frank in his career suicide about see, seeking therapy, about seeking medication, and 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 having the finding the humor in it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I think you know I think the books that stay with you are the ones that where you remember how they made you feel like yeah. when you're reading them. It's the same as like how you feel about people, right? Like you don't remember what they said, but you remember how they made you feel. And I think it's the same with books. Like you rem you know, you remember how they the book made you feel when you're reading it. Yes, yes. Um, and also I would say I'll give a plug for Salman Rushdie's Titanic Verses because that was a book I read in college that uh, yeah. not only did the book blow me away because in the sense that it was a very powerful novel, but also taught yeah. me the power of the word the power of a, of a fiction novel, you know, to 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 have a death threat put on his head, 
and uh, to kind of scare a lot of Islamic people so much that they have to, you know, uh, you know kind of malign him so much. But it's just interesting because the book itself is very amazing. It's a very, like, spiritual journey of uh, yeah, characters, yeah. and I love it. I love it, yeah. But, yeah, he's, yeah. He's, he's wonderful. Um, yeah, he's, yeah, the power of the pen, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, that really teaches you how it can really stir up some emotions for people and, uh, yeah. and, how, and how powerful literature can be. You know, yes. yeah. yeah. Well, we know what happened to uh, Jamal Khashoggi, which is quite unfortunate. But, you know, journalists, you know, putting their oh, yeah. rest all the oh. time, bringing all these truths. Um, but yeah, no, Salman Rushdie, wonder, yeah, Satanic Verses is great. Um, yeah, he's, I haven't read his recent one, but. Uh, I read, yeah, I, was, I read most of Kishat, right? Kishat. Yeah, I, I, I yeah. read it. I, yeah. It was really good. It was good as well, yeah. So he's still, he's still, he's, sometimes his later books are hit or miss, but sometimes like, sometimes he really blows out of the park though. Yeah. So I really yeah. appreciate it. The, the book I'd like to add for, for like, everyone should read is Tree Goes in Brooklyn by Betty Smith. It's just a good turn of the century, a lot of immigrants yeah. of, of that time. And it, it, it's just, it was, I've read it a few times and it's just one that stuck with me. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. What, what, what are your favorite genres? What are your guys' favorite genres? You guys, Matt? Um, I guess literature, contemporary literature. I also like Murakami. Yeah, uh, Murakami, magical realism. Like, yeah, magical realism. Yeah, yeah. that's pretty yeah. much for me as well. But uh, but as we start down, just quickly, if you could plug your website and uh, and just t- tell people how they can find you, just Google you, or is there any particular thing you want to promote? Yeah, so you can look up um, booktherapy.io, www.booktherapy.io, um, and no, you know, there's loads and loads of free resources on there. Um, so, you know, like loads of reading lists for different issues. There's a whole A to Z reading list. There's like articles. Um, there's like a podcast for more for children uh, and more for parents uh, who want to raise readers. Um, but, you know, if you're interested in bibliotherapy, there's a course giving you a history of it. Uh, there's a book prescriptions, bibliotherapy session. Like there's, there's just tons of stuff. Thank and you. there's loads of free stuff that you know you guys might be that your audience might be interested in just to explore thank you thank you so much for being here and this is radio for brooklyn truth to power show uh if you're listening to this program on your computer download the apps okay guys so thanks so much and uh thank you thank you so much for being here all right guys thank you bye-bye all right cheers Bye. bye